0: Hello. Welcome to the third episode of the American Years Revisited podcast. I'm Kate Simpson, coordinator of the American Years Project. Our project is creating space for and recording the many stories and memories of all the people whose lives are intrinsically linked to the American Navy's presence in the Holy Lock by Dunoon on the west coast of Scotland. In this episode, two retired American sailors, well-known Dunoon residents, Charlie Witherow and Jerry Prosley, talk about themselves and their memories of arriving in Scotland.
1: My name's Charlie Wither. I'm a retired chief petty officer. I'm from originally from a little town in Pennsylvania called Wellsboro. I joined the Navy in '67, and what happened is in 1966, America sent 100,000 troops to Vietnam. That's when it was starting. And the following year, another 100,000 were going, and I was getting ready to start college, but I knew if my number would come up, I'd get drafted. And I decided, because my older brother was in the Navy, I joined the Navy. I didn't like it at the beginning, but eventually I decided to stay to come to Scotland. And I've got little things in my mind here. As a young 18-year-old from a coal mine and farming community in Pennsylvania, at 18 years old, going through Cape Hatteras, I don't know if anybody knows about Cape Hatteras, but I was a helmsman under instruction. I I had to, this is no lie, I had to stand on a box to see over the the wheel to steer the ship. You have to look over and see this thing called the gyro repeater. So when you take over the watch, you're like four degrees left, rather eight degrees right, right, and all that stuff. And I'm thinking back, a little kid from a little town like that, and this is a big ship, and I'm steering it through what, I mean, the propellers are coming out of the water, the the waves are coming through. Later on, I was a upper handling room captain handling these five-inch thirty-eight bullets with a great big powder keg, yeah, you know? and and I was given the order to unset the fuse, and I had no idea that I had this wrench, I had to just put over the nose of this big, great, big bullet, and that's so <laughs> it could explode, and just all that stuff. Anyway, eventually I got here in Denoon, Hololock in nineteen seventy-three. I was here two years. My father took a serious stroke, so I got a, like a human, I was due for orders anyway, but I got transferred to Charleston, South Carolina on a destroyer tender. And I spent the next six months, any moment I had free to get back here. And I'm not, I can't say why. I don't know why it was so much I wanted back here. And as anybody that was based here, especially if you're in repair department, this had to be the hardest work in sight in the Navy. Because our FBN Fleet Ballistic Missile Submarines, had to be on patrol at a certain time. Because if they weren't on patrol, then those other guys who'd been out under the water all these lengthy times had to stay there. We had all kinds of deadlines. Jobs could be hot. They could be hot, hot. They could have 999. And you order a part 999, that's really fast. But if it was really, really, really important, it's 999, priority, hot. And they would take parts off other submarines to get here. This was a, well, it was called refit site one. And I did my, till 1987, I retired. And in 30 years, I ran my little trophy and engraving shop. And a couple of years ago, I sold it. Now I'm just, one other wee thing, it happened after 9-11. My wife and I were due to go home that weekend. 9-11 was a Tuesday. We were going home that weekend. I had everything set up as I was retired. I could fly from Milton Hall, England on a cargo plane for nothing. We were all set up for that weekend to go home. My sister was going in for a very serious operation. And then 9-11 happened. Well, after that, everything got canceled, obviously. And before that, I was thinking about starting up, trying to start up a fleet reserve branch here or something, because all we had no no one to turn to in scotland us retirees and veterans here so i come up with making this thing called the march of thoughts and i carried the american flag we marched down through the whole length of the noon and back people on the streets are crying i'm carrying this great big it wasn't a parade flag it was a big flag and i'm crying the guy behind me commander richard lambar he's behind and We did our thing. He laid the wreath. It was very emotional because we didn't know this was the end of the world as we knew it. You know, we didn't know if we was ever going to get to see our families again. So I just started asking people like Jerry and everybody, "Would you be interested if we, if I started up an association?" So that was in 2002. 18 years later, we still have about 30. Like if we lose one of our shipmates, we do our own honors. We can get honor guards from that, you know from the Air Force, but we do our own and. I think if you've seen our little video where we did one up in Perth, all of us pat ourselves on the back. That's exactly what we wanted. And we did it. Don Gable, one of our heritage members, he was in charge of folding the flag. It was just very emotional and appreciative from the family. And I'm really happy to be in this heritage thing. I hope it just keeps growing, keeps going and growing.
2: My name is Jerry Pursley. I uh, joined the Navy in 1961 after President Kennedy started building up the troop count, a little bit like Charlie Witherell's story. I actually had a cousin who worked for the local draft board, gave me some inside information <laughs> that I was going to be drafted. I was uh, I had no uh, real choice. I would either wind up uh, probably uh, toting a rifle, or I would be on a ship somewhere doing something. And previously, I had two uncles who were in the Navy when they were younger during the Second World War, and uh, they always looked pretty sharp in the uniform. So I thought, well, that's me. I can do that. So uh, I joined uh, joined up in August, uh, a couple of weeks before I would have been drafted and uh, a lot like Charlie in respect to the fact that I uh, went to boot camp training at Great Lakes. I was uh, up there. Those days you did 12 weeks of training. Uh, it took them about four weeks to shoot you with injections. So, uh, and the rest of the time, of course, they did testing. They tested your aptitude on your, all your different uh, things to see where you would fit as far as the job was concerned because i'd been working on tractors and cars and trucks and this sort of stuff i wanted to be a cb and they said well no problem at all only thing is we don't have an opening for cbs you're going to go on a ship you're going to be an engine. so anyway i wound up taking a taking a a school for engineman and uh, spent another 12 weeks in great lakes before getting my orders to a place called Holy Loch in Scotland. And you could not find it on the map because I was looking for the name of the town. Didn't realize it was just a little bit of a stretch of water over here. So anyway, I was I knew it was, knew, knew where in the world it was, but I didn't know exactly where where in the country it was. So anyway, it uh, proved out to be a very good move. Uh, and everything, and uh, so I came here and, and uh, met Linda. I flew from New York. i had come up through the mountains because I came from Kentucky and went across across Tennessee and up through the Smoky Mountains. Everything was gray. Yeah. And when I when I left New York. And flew over Scotland. And, of course, we come in those days, we came in a prop job. Mm-hmm. so. Uh, but when we're coming in to land in, in Prestwick, uh, it was the uh, most beautiful green you ever laid your eyes on. It was just uh, a beautiful place. And you're thinking, you're thinking right away, well, I'm this far north. Why is it so beautiful? You know, first impressions were gold. You know, yeah. it was beautiful. And uh, it was a a, a good experience. I, we had we had a good flight coming over, and then uh, they said, "Well, there's where you're going over there," because we went into uh, Guruk and then over to to Greenett. We caught the caught one of the Liberty boats from Cardwell Bay over to the ship. So, uh, but uh, no, it was uh, first impressions of of Scotland was beautiful, and I didn't even I was on the ship for about. I think it must have been a few days. Anyway, it was uh, before I got off, and didn't even. I, everybody saying, "Oh, well, you know, if you want to, if you want to go anywhere, you need to go to Greenup. You know, you have to go to the other side of the water." It made it sound like that we. You only had a little, little store in in uh, Danoon, like there was nothing there. It was it was great to get over. I'm used to a small town. I think Charlie, you're the same, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, it was a, uh, uh, in Dunoon in 1962 uh, when I came over and in March and April, the town was buzzing. I mean, you know, um, I never, never visited a place where they put all the, all the produce on the pavements and people up and down the streets. And on a Saturday with all the prams being pushed up and down, down the street, it was, uh, uh, the town was buzzing and I thought, my God, this is not a small town. I came from a small town where where we had a couple of guys sitting on park benches chewing tobacco and spitting their tobacco, <laughs> <in it. laughs> Ten, you know. So I mean uh Denoum was uh, was quite quite a surprise for me.
1: Yeah like one and, of our uh, our bars we had uh, silver dollar or something like that. <clears throat> they always had peanuts <laughs> on the bar. Yeah well and you can local, help yourself let's see if you you had to throw the peanut shells on the floor if you put them in the ashtray. You had to buy a round of drinks <laughs> and leave.
2: Yeah, but, but uh, uh, no, I, I think uh, Danube uh, was was very lively. It was uh, was a nice town, still is. And Charlie, um, when you came over, uh, when you, what was your first impression?
1: Well, being from a very very small town, it's like. Three thousand people, including the cemeteries and pets and everybody. When I got here, I flew into Prestwick because this was pre-computer time, so I had no idea what Scotland was going to be like. One of the things I noticed in the '70s, like in the in America, it was all big muscle cars, you know, the big Buicks and Chevys and all that. And got here, it was like the eleven hundreds and stuff. They, they looked like bread boxes, you know. They had no no character, almost like French cars, no character at all. When I got actually in the town for a bit looking around, one of the things I, I'm a, I can remember is the butcher shops. You know, looking through a big plate glass window, and here's all kinds of different animals and chickens and stuff all just hanging there, no coolers, no nothing. If that was today, everybody would drop, be dropping dead. If they survived coronavirus, they'd be dropping dead from all this animal stuff. And I think the other th- other stupid thing I remember is the pints, pints of lager. Uh, you go into a bar in America and get a glass of beer. It's like four ounces, you know, some little woozy thing. Like you take orange juice in. Here you got what well, you got like this. And I didn't steal this, by the way. It was in my hedge. So I just kept it. When you're just thinking back of the how things were, like you mentioned, I would forgot about the prams and stuff. And actually prams sitting out in the street with kids in them. The,
2: you know the, yeah.
1: and it was safe and no, nothing happened. You can, you can walk down the street. You can still do that. You can do what you want to do, and it's just a nice place to live. Well,
2: I remember as well. You know, I flew into Presswick as well when we arrived, and they they drove us down in I think an old what they call a, a Tim's van. They had about eight or ten of us jammed in this little van, coming down to to Gura. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think I was ended up sitting on somebody's knees coming down in the van. And, uh, you know, we had our sea bags in there and everything in there for the getting down to Cardwell Bay. Yeah, like you say, I mean, all the uh, vegetable produce shops and everything. Had had boxes and and they, they when they opened in the morning they put all this stuff out out on the pavements and uh, the, the fish shop uh, served served right through the window there the one on uh, Argyle Street uh, just uh, up from the Crown uh, you could just go to the window and it would serve you you had all the fresh meats and stuff right are uh, right in front of you it just wasn't. What we were used to in the states in these days, it was so practical and so different that just just made it made it extremely enjoyable, you know, to, to be there. The other thing of it was coming off the ship in in sixty two, we weren't allowed to, to wear civilian clothes when we first arrived, and everybody was in uniform. You you meet people out. The odd one or two that you didn't see were people, you know, in civilian clothes. You would see some that uh, were probably had accommodation ashore at that time. There were a few of them, not very many in 62. But uh, it uh, was a, uh, was like I'm saying, it was a very enjoyable experience arriving in Scotland. And the people made you feel extremely welcome.
1: I don't remember when they actually changed where you, you had to wear your uniform or you didn't have to. I know you it was you had to be an E five or above to wear civilian mm-hmm. clothes. And you'd have like the strip, like at Norfolk, and you'd have locker clubs. And even here you had a locker club you, you know inside the Bowling Alley. And what really made it one of the ships I was on, we went to Jamaica. And you're down there in your dress uniform on the beach. You really, you know, core fam shoes and a dress uniform on a beach. So what you do is you'd rent a motel, a whole bunch of you. You go out and you buy a T-shirt and a pair of shorts and flip flops. Then you had to throw them away because having civilian clothes on the ship was probably more serious than having drugs. We didn't have a drug problem. No. Then. It was all in town, but it was such a different life. And you talk about it now and you think. Every day when you went to go home, you had to put your uniform on. And
2: Well, it was it. In, in 62, we didn't have a locker club. There was one when I came back in 71, and that was the one just around the corner. Uh, there was a, uh, a French guy that lived there. I can't remember his last name now. But uh, he had a bunch of lockers in there, and, and guys would run up there and, and change their clothes and stuff. But you're quite right. We weren't allowed, you weren't even allowed to keep any civilian clothes in your locker on the ship.
1: No, not that was, to like me. It was very serious. That
2: you found out that uh, the uniform in Danoon puts you completely uh, how do I say it? Out of character with with the usual. Everybody knew exactly who you were, yeah. you know. So uh, anyway, in those days we had our ship tag on your on your shoulder. Anyway, I know that when the uh, holiday makers came to Denoon, and a lot of them did come in in uh, about Easter time, we were quite generally uh, quite an attraction in Denoon. People stopping you and asking me where you're from and let me hear your accent and you know and, and all these sort of things. And you were you're a little bit like the like like the pet dog in Danone, you know, and that uh, was
1: that was yeah. like that in the mid-80s also. I was the indoctrination yeah. officer. I had my office out at, at Bayard Adam Pier, where it was in the movie theater, and the coaches used to come up like shearings and stuff from Glenn Morgan stuff. And they would stop and they could call me, and I would go on the bus. I was a the chief then, chief petty officer. I had my complete black uniform with the collar devices and metal the ribbons and stuff. And I'd be walking on the bus, and these, as I am now, what I wasn't then, but these elderly ladies, it was like I felt like a pop a record recorder person, you know, they're reaching out, wanting to touch me. Oh, yeah. Uh, no yeah. one comes near me now, but it did uh, But it was. Really funny how they were just, oh,
2: you know. So <laughs> I felt like a bit of a denoon attraction, you know, in those yeah. days.
0: You have been listening to Jerry Persley and Charlie Witherer, and I have been Kate Simpson. Tune in next time for the second half of this conversation where you'll hear Charlie and Jerry talk with Andrine Messerschmidt, Margaret Hubbard, Anne Campbell and Linda Persley. We'll get to hear the memories of the town from the first days of the American years and Linda and Jerry will tell us how they met for the first time. Thank you for listening. See you next time.